What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have a special guest, Jennifer Ezerlow, and she is a master chef. She's just getting her genetic testing done. She's doing keto and low carb. Without further ado, how are you, Jennifer? Oh, it's great to be here. I'm great. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, kind of give a, me, this is the first time we've spoken, so give me and the audience a little intro on you and kind of what brings you into the space in the first place. Sure. So, um, you know, my journey towards integrated and functional medicine and low-carb and ketogenic uh, lifestyle came from um, me healing myself. And I started out in a pretty bad place. I come from a family where most of my family members have died from obesity-related illnesses, and most of my family members are morbidly obese. So I have all the cards stacked against me. And, uh, you know, through my practice of yoga and meditation, I was able to get rid of my emotional eating addiction, which also uh, gave me the courage to follow my dream to become a chef. Uh, so that was pretty exciting. And through that experience and private chefing with some celebs, I started to get involved in publishing. And I was really always fascinated in health. And uh, I've worked with a lot of health, pu- health hubs like Self Magazine, Prevention. I worked with an amazing nutritionist from the Today Show. So, you know, my health journey keeps on going, keeps on getting and as I kind of peel back the layers of the onion, I'm starting to learn even more working with uh, amazing functional medicine practitioners who do uh, root cause resolution healing and going deep on the testing on the microbiome and gut bugs and genetics and uh, a bunch of other stuff. So it's been a fabulous journey and I continue to learn so much about the body and healing. Very cool. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. The, the deeper you dig, the deeper it gets. So you just keep on going farther and farther. So with with your family being like they are, what do they think about all this? Like you totally kind of, you know, breaking free and changing your, you know, destiny, so to speak. I mean, following in your own different perspective, what do they think about it all? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's challenging because, you know, in my family, uh, they're amazing cooks. We love food. We just love food too much. So I think as they've watched me transform over the years, they've been excited, but also a little intimidated. And I think it's hard. It's like kind of like the shoemaker's kids where some of my family members have followed some, you know, some of the information I give them and some of my family members are really resistant to it. And part of that has to do with um, having a food addiction. And part of that is gut bugs and genetics that my family is actually set up to be obese because of certain things that are in our genetic code. And also, um, we have a type of gut bugs that pretty much populate our microbiome or, you know, the population of good flora that live in your intestines. Um, And 70% of those bugs that we have um, genetically are the ones that don't metabolize food and that food just kind of sticks to our ribs. So, you know, a lot of cards stacked against us in that arena and you know also my family comes from Pittsburgh and I live in New York so the mentality is a little bit different but I'm also going into a space where um, I consider it personalized medicine or extreme biohacking so the kind of work I'm doing a lot of people aren't aware of and it's definitely not what is not the common knowledge or not 
not what's happening in traditional medicine today. So if you go to your regular doctor and you ask them about gluten, they'll probably give you the wrong test and it'll come back negative. That actually happened to me. Or if you go to your doctor and ask about the microbiome, they probably don't know much about it, which is sad because this is cutting edge science. This is, you know, based in, in medicine, but, you know, work, I'm kind of working on the edge of that. And my husband and I both work in functional medicine. Yeah, yeah. So, so dive into that. I've had a few, you know, functional medicine practitioners on the podcast before, and I, I'm constantly intrigued by just the the level of you know simplicity, but also complexity with some of the stuff. So, some of it's so simple that we just fail to look at, it and it's like the glaring you know chink in the armor, and then some of it's very very detailed. So, so dive into that and kind of enlighten us. Sure. So the simple stuff is about getting back to the good old ways of eating, primarily eating fermented foods, eating uh, grass-fed proteins, eating farm-to-table. That's all old wisdom that's been destroyed through the mechanization of food. And in the 1970s, where women went into the workforce, and I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm all for that. But then we started doing weird stuff with our food, TV dinners, all this kind of putting chemicals in our food. And that really ramped up in the last 20 years. So this is why people have so many allergies, like kids with all these peanut allergies and gluten allergies. We engineer our wheat so differently now than even 20 years ago. So, you know, the simplicity is about going back to a slower way of living. The complexity is in the testing, which, um, you know, functional medicine practitioners are all about root cause resolution, lifestyle medicine. But one of the really sciencey things they do that can uh, unveil why you may feel sick or why you may have your predisposition that you have has to do with this very intense form of of genetic and, and gut testing that they do along with a host of other tests to really see what's happening on the molecular level, which is oh so important. And they take all that testing and crisscross it. So let me give you an example. Um, you know, I'm having a bout with skin cancer right now, which is pretty devastating to me. And I am not a sudden worshiper, but certainly back in the day, I did my fair share of the baby oil. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm working with an integrated functional medicine OBGYN who's basically looked at my genetics and is like, dude, you store estrogen in three dangerous ways. I turn my testosterone to estrogen. I don't metabolize it. I also don't have the gene for to produce glutathione, which is the mother of all detoxers. So this is really bad stuff. I'm basically set up for breast cancer 10 years from now. So she's like, well, what else do you have going on? So I was telling her about this spot on my nose that I had to have excavated and how awful and shocking it was. And she's like, wait, is it a basal cell? She goes, yeah, that's linked to estrogen storage. And I was blown away by that. She's like, do you also happen to have dry eye? I'm like, yes, I do. She's like, that's also linked to estrogen storage. So what's great about working with her is she's both a board certified OBGYN and a functional medicine practitioner. So she can read my 40 page genetic, you know, printout and tell me the link of what's happening in other ways in my body based on what's happening with my hormones. So what's so wonderful is she's able to give me a lot of ways to balance that and hopefully bring down my risk of the skin cancer coming back in other forms of cancer. So this is the really specialized work that integrated and functional medicine practitioners do. And nothing against a traditional OBGYN, but when I go to my lady here in Hoboken where I live, she gives me the pap smear and, you know, the pelvic exam and sends me off. There's no talk of, she doesn't even ask me, like, how do you feel? You're getting close to menopause. You're in perimenopause. There isn't a word about that. And that's really concerning to me because you should be talking about diet. You should be talking about stress. You should be talking about 
uh, foods that have phytoestrogen in them. She never asked me if anyone in my family had breast cancer. It's kind of shocking. So I feel like if you really want to be on top of your health, you have to have both practitioners. And unfortunately, with functional medicine practitioners, it's usually cash-based practice. So you do have to set aside a little money. But, you know, the couple thousand dollars, the whole thing costs, all the testing, I think is worth your life in the long run. Yeah, totally, totally agree. I mean, the the whole concept of the estro- estrogens, the hormones, especially in the modern day, I actually had a Dr. Anthony Jay who wrote Estrogeneration on the podcast a few weeks back, and he was diving into just all the, the like home products that we use, like the shampoos, the soaps, the conditioners that are filled with these artificial estrogens, and it just blew my mind what we were putting in our bodies. I know. And that that includes plastic, plastic bags, saran wraps. So when I had this basal cell on my nose, I got rid of all those, which is also really great because I didn't know I had that estrogen storage issue. And when I looked at my genetics, I actually cannot detox estrogens that come from plastic, which is super bad. So that also means when I go out or I do takeout, especially if you're putting hot foods into things that are not BPA free. Like styrofoam and whatnot. Yeah, so I turn, I changed, switched everything over to glass containers. Honestly, we don't eat out that much because I'm a chef, so we eat out maybe once a week. So I feel like I don't have to worry about the takeout issue as much. But I caution women, especially since I have four friends with breast cancer and one of them is stage four. So, you know, this is the stuff that's on my mind as I'm 46 years old and moving into the next phase of my life. Yeah, it's, I don't know, I, I think it's... um. Like like you were saying, most people don't get this kind of in-depth look at their hormonal health, you know, going to a standard, you know, doctor practitioner. And when you dive into this on a hormonal level, it really kind of opens the door and paints a picture for truly what's happening. Like my fiance, Crystal, she just had all of her hormone panel done and she was, interestingly enough, very estrogen deficient. So she's trying to take in certain, you know, wholesome foods that can possibly increase her estrogen count. But if you didn't test for that, I mean, you would have no way of knowing and that would dramatically affect the foods you're consuming, the the products you're using, like you need to be aware. Yeah. And your fiance can eat things that are high in phytonutrients and she can do an evening primrose supplement, which will give her a lot of softness to her skin and you know, other things that you look that we get from estrogen. Now, in my case, I was doing high foods that are high in phytoestrogen, which is the wrong thing to do, but I would have never known had I not had the proper testing. So once you get the genetic testing, that's the first step. The next round of testing is to the blood work, which will say how much estrogen is in your blood or not. Um, Get the urine test, which is called the Dutch test. We'll which will show the doctor how you're excreting it or metabolizing it. And the last one is saliva test to see how those stress hormones are going if you're very high in cortisol, because that also makes a difference in how you metabolize estrogen. So this is very important. And I think for women especially, you're we're just sort of like, I think, wandering around in the dark. Now, if you don't have the money for this testing, which I can understand, you know, I find that paleo diet, ketogenic could be a way to go to help balance hormones. But you do, if you have, you know, cases of breast cancer or you are really concerned or you're having fatigue or very extreme acne, I say go bite the bullet and get the testing done. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's uh, it's interesting. When I was when I was younger, I had terrible, terrible acne and I'd never even thought to consider my foods that I was that I was consuming. And how they could have implemented my hormones, like all that was just not even in my radar. 
um, you know, in hindsight now, looking back on it, if I had just simply changed the foods I was eating and eat more wholesome foods, it probably would have been a non-issue. But yeah, women especially, I mean, hormones for women are on a whole other level than us guys. We've, we've got it easy from that standpoint. So I think if you've got the means and you're having issues, especially, it's definitely worth the expense to, to figure out and have a game plan going forward. Yeah, for sure. And I think too, as women age, you know, you just see a lot of changes in your body. Um, one thing I can tell you though, changing my diet and, you know, making these simple, easy changes with the plastic containers. I also detoxed my makeup routine and also my household cleaners um, has been an enormous help. And I also had an undiagnosed gluten allergy that I didn't know about, which is really important because if you're sensitive to gluten, it means your body's inflamed every time you put anything with wheat, rye, and barley into your mouth. And that could mean that the inflammation can happen even if you only have a bite once a week. So that's something I didn't know about. And I saw a huge change in my energy level and in my skin. And now I'm an avid MMA kickboxer. I kickbox three days a week and I work out five days a week. And I remember when I first started kickboxing, I could not keep up. But then once I kicked gluten out of my life, it was a different story. Did you notice like when you would eat foods high in gluten in the past, did you notice like a pretty prominent flare up soon after eating them or did it never register? Well, I think because I was eating gluten all the time, I just felt crappy all the time and I didn't know why. And, you know, when I got my blood work done, it came back clean. Also, the traditional tests that a regular MD will give you that's covered under healthcare only tests for one of the proteins. I'm not allergic to that protein. I'm allergic to another. So you need to get the proper testing, which is called the GI map. But what is interesting is now that I'm gluten-free and I never cheat because I feel like crap the next day, um, when somebody at a restaurant makes a mistake, I know there's a problem because the first thing that happens is my heart races or I have a neurological reaction, which is usually a lot of anxiety the next day. And I thought that was so strange. So I talked to a couple other practitioners and they're like, yes, gluten sensitivity can actually create some kind of neurological reaction. And most people either react by extreme bloating acne or by extreme anxiety, which could also be chalked up to sleeplessness at night. People think that's regular stress. It's not regular stress. It could be uh, a food allergy. And that's what happened to me. Now, when I get into bed, I'm asleep five minutes later. And I tell you, it's amazing just to be able to sleep properly and not feel like my mind is racing when I go to bed at night. Absolutely. And and just kind of from a time frame perspective, when, when was all this happening? Like when did you, you know, do all this genetic testing? Uh, the genetic testing I've done really recently in the last six months, but with uh, my first bout of testing, uh, functional medicine testing was four years ago. Um, so the first level I did is was really focused on the gut. So I did a test called a GI map to really um, sort of showcase what's happening inside the microbiome, which is basically the flora inside our gut. And I found out that I had... Um, an overgrowth of streptococcus, staphylococcus, and something called campobacter, which you get from raw chicken. And since I was a chef, no surprise there. So that was causing a little fatigue. So I was able to clean that mess up. And then the other thing that I got done is called the organic acid test, which is really interesting. And it tells you how efficiently you handle fats, carbs, and proteins. And my husband and I had them done in tandem, and we have 
two totally different markups. He cannot handle carbohydrates. Anytime he eats too many carbs, it goes into his blood as fats, which are also called triglycerides. And his triglycerides were crazy. They were like 1800, which is basically heart attack level. But he's one of those skinny dudes. I call him the banana shape. I'm more the apple shape. So, you know, my cholesterol was fine, but I had some other issues going on with those, par not parasites, but with those unfriendly or opportunistic bacteria. So once we realized that for me, you know, paleo keto is the best and for him, keto really is the best because he metabolizes fats beautifully, but not carbohydrates. I just cooked to tweak our diet, to tweak our diet. And two months later, all of his blood work came back perfect. He had normal triglycerides at 200 and all of his other cholesterol stats were perfection. Our traditional doctor was blown away. And this guy didn't want to let him go without putting him on medication. Wow. That's crazy. See, that's when it comes to cholesterol, there's so much that is not, it just flies under the radar with standard healthcare. I mean, they're not looking at a lot of the right things, especially the, all the new research that's coming out with regard to you know, LDL and yeah, the science. old research is not right. The old research is not right. It's not meat that's causing and fat that's causing, it's actually carbohydrate. But that being said, I caution people, do not do corn-fed sources of meat if you can avoid them because that's high in omega-6s, which causes a lot of inflammation. So it's really a game of inflammation at the end of the day, whether you're, you have bad gut bugs, whether you can't process something, whether you're eating the wrong kinds of fat. Because if you're doing trans fat versus something like olive oil and you're doing a keto style, you may be thin, but you're body could be in a state of inflammation, which will cause deterioration of our neurological issues. So this is why when you're doing keto, you want to make sure that you're doing good quality fats. Now, coconut oil, this is really interesting, and I was blown away by this. In my genetic code, I don't process coconut oil well. My husband does. So if we're going to do keto, I'm not really using coconut oil for me. For him, it's okay. And then this also speaks to why in the studies, Coconut oil is good. No, it's bad. No, it's good. Well, it depends on your genetic code. Gotcha. And that, that stands for like lauric acid specifically or just coconut oil as a whole? Oh, goodness. That's too sciencey of a question for me. I can't answer <laughs> that. But uh, I would have to pull up my study and look at it. No, that, that is interesting because everybody de defaults to, you know, coconut oil. So, I mean, it really is truly an individualized basis. Yeah, and it depends on how, I guess, the coconut oil is manufactured because I know different ones have different molecular structures. That's why I don't want to – I can't really speak to that question, so I'd have to ask a practitioner and they would know. So that testing, the gut testing was done about four years ago. That's when you pretty much switched your nutritional protocol for the – like more towards a low-carb style? Yeah, you know, I was already dabbling in low carb because I've worked on a couple books for Atkins, but I was still eating gluten because Atkins isn't gluten free. So, you know, I was still missing some of those pieces, but I have done induction through Atkins, which is basically 20 net grams of carbohydrates a day. The difference between Atkins and keto is that Atkins is a little lower on the fat, higher on the protein. Mm -hmm. So fat, you're looking at probably 60 grams a day and around 40 grams of protein or so, um, depending on what style of keto you're doing, because I also work for a keto company, some keto programs will have you do around 100 grams of fat or more a day. So why this could be beneficial is definitely for brain health because our brains are made up of fat. Um, but it could be a little tough for women with hormone issues. So you have to watch that. And then also for your gut microbes. So just be careful that you're doing the anti-inflammatory kinds of fat. 
Now, typically when I do keto, it's a really nice way for me to trim down and I add in a lot of detoxifying vegetables with my fat like cauliflower and things from the cruciferous family, also kale, and I load on the grass-fed butter and the olive oil. Do you notice any kind of GI distress or anything when you increase your vegetation intake? No, but I do with fat slightly. So what I do to get over that is to increase the fat slowly. So I don't hit myself with a bombshell of 100 grams of fat a day because then I'll get a, a little bit of a gut thing. And that's also because historically I've had, ish, I've had IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. So women who've had IBS, fat can be a challenge, but if you work your way up. So maybe the first day I am doing very modified carbs, say seven grams a day. So seven grams a day, you can't do grains on that. And I don't really eat a lot of grains. I will do a few gluten-free grains like quinoa from from time to time, which is actually a seed and also brown rice. But when I'm doing keto, I'm I'm keeping within that seven net grams of carbs. So that's carbs minus fiber. And then instead of doing the full 100 grams of fat, I might be hitting around 40 or 50. And then as the days go on, I increase it. And I find that my digestion is perfectly fine. Now with my husband, since he deals with fat super well, I just slather it on and then there's no problems. But we don't stay on keto all the time. We do more of a modified low-carb diet. I mean, how many calories are you taking in? It sounds like you're at a pretty low caloric intake if you're doing like 40 or 50 grams of fat and then seven net grams of carbs. I mean, are, is there much protein in there? Yeah. So I'm usually doing, I would say around 30 grams of protein a day when I'm doing the keto and I'll do keto for a week. The reason why I understand exactly how many grams I'm doing is because I'm a recipe developer and I own the nutritional program that actually does the specific counts where I'm inputting the food. So I know exactly what's in the recipes and I'm so intimately familiar with this because when I work for these companies, I have to make sure that I'm hitting the nutritional markers. So I think unfortunately when a lot of people are doing keto, they're not. They think they're doing keto, but they're actually eating probably closer to 40 to 50 grams of carbs a day without realizing it, they still lose weight, which is awesome. And the whole point to it is you do want to bring down the carbs because if you're eating two to 300 grams of carbs a day, which is what an unhealthy person probably is doing with the bagel and the Dunkin' Donuts coffee and all this kind of stuff, you're way ahead of the game if you're doing 40 grams of carbs a day. But I know through doing this intensive recipe testing and then eating the recipes and portioning it out exactly how much I'm getting usually mocks up to around 1200 calories a day. Now the days I kickbox, I'm going to eat more. The days I kickbox, I try to do more of a ketogenic because the, the fat is so filling. I don't want to go too far over the calories so that I can maintain weight. But it's really interesting because all of these, you know, diets that I, I study and all these programs that I work for and the doctors, I test everything out on myself because I like to see how I react and to understand if these things really work. Now, they work differently on different people because you have a different genetic makeup and whatever's going in in your gut plays a huge role and also your hormones. Yeah, definitely agree. 1,200 calories is pretty low though. I don't, I, I, would, I would not make it that low. Yeah, but you're looking at a 46-year-old lady. So I like to stay size four. So that's how I stay that low and I'm not hungry on it. So that's also the really important thing. But, you know, as you get into your 40s and you want to keep your weight down, I find ketogenic diets really easy and it's an easy way for me to feel full, get the vegetables in and, you know, still stay in shape. And that's important to me since I work in this industry. Yeah, I mean, 
working out six days a week and doing the kickboxing three what what got you into kickboxing i'm curious Oh my gosh, I think I've always loved martial arts. I just was a little bit nervous about getting into them um, because I, you know, I'm a chef and I have to use my hands. Uh, so yeah, so once I retired from private chefing, I just wandered into uh, an MMA studio and I just loved it. And I've always been kind of like a tomboy at heart, I guess. So uh, the first time I took kickboxing, it was actually, I was in Thailand. My husband and I were there for a month and I tried to class out and I fell in love with it. And I think too, you know, I've been a yogi for a long time and I loved yoga, but what I noticed was, you know, once I got into my forties, it wasn't enough cardio for me. And I was starting to get a little bit of a belly and as an apple shaped person, and I also have a lot of heart issues in my genetics, you know, my veins don't dilate properly. The cardio is an absolute must. And I'm not one to go to the gym. I find the gym super boring. So, you know, I fell in love with kickboxing. I kickbox here in, in Hoboken at Tiger Shulman. And my sensei is a, a former UFC fighter and he is so badass and he actually trains us. And it's, you know, it's a thrill to box with him, but he has a very cool personality. And my husband is part of our kickboxing group and I'm good friends with all the people that I spar with. And it's just, you know, a nice break from sitting at the computer. And because I'm not moving around, as a chef anymore. That's another reason why I'm looking at the calorie restriction. I'm just not as active, you know, and that really um, can make a difference in, in how you lose or gain weight. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've, I've always had a keen interest towards more sorts as well. I've uh, not been doing it very regularly, but I've, I've kind of had that in the back of my mind of something I want to get into specifically like a jujitsu or some type of, you know, grappling sport like that. But Kickboxing is is pretty cool. It's a lot of respect for y'all. Yeah, we do um, grappling and kickboxing as well, or MMA is mixed martial arts. Um, and what I can tell people out there who are really interested in getting into it is, first of all, it's a blast. It's so much fun. But I caution you to really go to a studio where people are nice and that you have a good vibe because it, it is, you know, very taxing on the body and you want to make sure you're spending time with people that aren't going to hurt you or that respect you. And the reason I'm saying this is because I ran into a friend of mine the other day and he, he had trouble walking and I, I was like, oh my gosh, what happened to you? And here he was doing jujitsu and they were grappling and somebody broke his neck and back out of anger and he's had to have metal pins put in everywhere. And, you know, it is a sport and there is a competitive flair, but you want to be in a studio where people respect your health because I don't want to see stuff like that. And this is also why, like, I love the idea of CrossFit, but I just know so many people that have gotten hurt in it. And the interesting thing with kickboxing is I've never been hurt. I've actually been hurt more in yoga yeah. <laughs> and I still do yoga. But the idea is that, you know, when you kickbox, you're in a nice, soft mat you know, you're kicking on the bag at first. It's very low impact. You wrap your hands and, you know, you want to protect your body while you're doing these aggressive sports. Yeah, it's it's and not only just the body, but it's it's like a exercise for the mind. I mean, you have to have the right mentality to go in there and have a student, um, like a student mindset to go in there and learn and be willing to, you know, not say make a fool of yourself, but truly be open to instruction. Yeah. And the thing I like about it too, is there's just a ton of technique. And at the end, we do a very intensive stretching, which is all yoga. So karate and a lot of these martial arts were actually taught by Indian monks historically, and they were 
they were, you know, they're basically the moving form of yoga, like warrior one, warrior two, you do that in kickboxing. You actually go through those movements and it was at a time where a lot of people weren't allowed to bear arms and they had to defend themselves and it comes out of the yogic tradition. So it's kind of interesting. But for me, it's just an enormous amount of fun. And, you know, sometimes I get to fight with some pretty intense individuals when the other girls don't show up and, you know, I'm boxing with dudes and it can be a real challenge. <laughs> but uh, it's also a mindset thing because I have to intimidate them with my energy versus because, you know, I'm not going to beat a guy. A guy is just, I mean, upper body wise, they're way too strong. Could I beat him with a kick? For sure. Yeah. Or could I intimidate them with my aggressive energy when I'm boxing? Yeah. Um, but there is something fun about that. You know, it's very challenging, but you know, we've got the music going, we have nice people and it's just all around a great experience. Yeah. I mean, you're definitely making me that much more compelled to just jump into it and learn. I think that'd be a good, <laughs> good. way to, to add to my repertoire for sure. Um, what, what about the, the chef? Let's, let's go back to that kind of full circle there. Cause you said that you'd been a chef for quite some time now. What, I know you said your family liked to cook, but what kind of made you go into the culinary uh, industry and, and become a chef? And then what, what's your specialty? Yeah. So, um, you know, my chefing career was very explosive. I call it trial by fire. A lot of crazy things happened. Um, but it really started out with yoga and I was in my late twenties. We, uh, my husband and I moved to New York and I started practicing yoga and through the meditation and the mind body connection, um, stuff we were doing, I realized that I had still had this emotional eating addiction that I wanted to rid myself of. And I noticed I'd always tense my stomach and then I would eat when I wasn't hungry. So I worked on just the breath work and yoga and releasing my stomach. And I did it every day for a year. And after a year, the addiction went away, which was so fantastic. But then I also realized that I wanted to do something creative, but I was always afraid to do it because I was afraid of failing. So I followed my dream to become a chef in 2003. I went to culinary school and I just went dove right into the restaurant scene, which was harrowing. And it was me and a bunch of dudes in a kitchen. A lot of them were convicts, illegal immigrants. It was a tough scene. And, you know, the first, I'd say, week or so when I'd step in the kitchen, they'd roll their eyes and then I'd get my knife out. And once they saw my knife skills, it was a different story. And they taught me so many amazing things about food. And, you know, I learned everything from how to butcher, how to cook for people in the dining room and grill meat. So I have you know, the real chef's skills. And after about three years of that, I was offered a position as a private chef through um, one of the guys I worked with. And that was an incredible experience. So I started to private chef for celebrities. And that was another kind of fear factor thing where I was thinking to myself, oh my God, like, how am I here? Like one day I'm taking out garbage in a restaurant, the next day I'm, you know, but I chalk it up to having the right mindset. And I always think of that term, follow your bliss, which was coined by uh, Joseph Campbell. And he says, when you're doing the thing that you're meant to be doing in your life, you know, magical things happen. And it certainly happened to me like that. And then, you know, I went on to do a little bit of television. Yes, I've been on Chopped. That was super scary. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I went, I started to work in publishing. And, you know, I left that industry because I started to have a lot of physical pain. And I think part of that was linked to my gluten sensitivity. But I thought I actually had rheumatoid arthritis and I had pain 
and all my joints. So I decided that it would be better for my health if I left private chefing and I just dove into food writing and that's when I started to write quite a few books in the health sector and I've done uh, almost 24 books today. Well, yeah, I guess it has been 24. So, you know, I've written for every different type of health publication, but I've learned different science from different areas. But now that we have this cutting edge science and I work in functional medicine, I understand why we have a lot of conflicting information out there. But it's been an amazing journey. And along this journey, I've been able to heal a lot of my own issues, not only physically, but also emotionally and with my mindset. Yeah, that is really a full circle. I mean, to, to go from one end of the spectrum to the other like that, I mean, you've just seen and done it all. You have so much perspective from it all now. Do you miss the private chefing at all? Like, is that anything that you feel, you know, like, is there a hole there? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes I miss the kitchen, actually. I miss that camaraderie of the guys and, you know, and I'll be honest, I miss the glamour of the scene, of the restaurant scene, because now I'm working at home. So it's me mm-hmm. in my yoga clothes in front of the computer. Then I take a break to go kickboxing and I come home. So sometimes I do miss that glamour. And, you know, when I was a private chef, I met all kinds of interesting people, but I don't miss the pressure. The stress was enormous. And I think, uh, you know, I still have dreams that I open the fridge that I'm about to cook for for one of the families and the fridge is empty. <laughs> That's like my my top chef dream where I'm like, well, there's nothing in the fridge. But um, but yeah, I, I just don't think that lifestyle is very sustainable. And most of the private chefs I know or people in restaurants, they definitely go through burnout. So I think I avoided that by leaving the industry at the right time. But at the time I was also in my mid-30s and I, I felt it was time to say goodbye. How does how does private chefing work exactly? Like you have like people contact you you come over to their place and they just you just cook whatever they have there. Do you bring like I, I'm totally ignorant as to that that career path? Sure. So you know, private chefing can be done in a variety of ways. So it depends on you know uh, what the client's budget is, where you live. Um, you know, what kind of service you want to provide. In my case, I did highly specialized. So I would be there 10 hours a day at the client's house. I would do fresh shopping twice a day. I'd be cooking for the family, a separate meal for the kids, and also for anyone who worked in the home. If it was a butler, a nanny, a chauffeur. So I'd make sure that, that everybody in the entire family had food, but it could get tricky because I'd have to time everything differently. So I would do the family style meal for the staff a little bit earlier, say at 1130, do the kids at 12 and do uh, Mr. and Mrs. at, at 1230. So it is very demanding, but the beauty of it is it allows for a ton of creativity, but it is a service job. So you have to make sure that you're cooking what the family wants to eat. And you also have to keep in mind if they have any dietary or health issues. So it can be challenging. I do have friends who actually do food drop-offs, but then you have to make sure that you have a certified kitchen that's been inspected by the health department, and that's a whole nother ball of wax. But there's a lot of different ways to do private chefing. It can be very rewarding, especially when you have nice families and they appreciate your food. In my case, my families were super open to me cooking whatever. So I would just cook for them and I could be super creative. And it was fun. It was more fun than the restaurant in that way, because in the restaurant, you're just grinding out somebody else's food and you're making the same dishes every night until the season changes. But when you private chef, you know, you're there to kind of delight the clients and make it exciting for them. And they give you a lot of leeway on that. I'm, I'm just, I have to ask him and I'm curious here. What is the worst private chef experience that you ever had? There's got to be some like snafu somewhere in the line. 
Oh, uh, yeah, I think it was probably I did a Thanksgiving dinner for someone and the turkey caught on fire. And I was like, ah! <laughs> which was totally my bad. But I had packed the oven so full because I was making this huge Thanksgiving Day meal and I had so many dishes. And when you work in New York City, you know, even it's crazy. Even celebrities, they have really small stoves because that's what fits into these time, you know, these smaller apartments and their apartments are bigger than you know, the standard person's apartment, but the stove sometimes are the same size. So it can be a challenging uh, challenge to get all the food in the oven. And so what I ended up doing was I saw the fire and there was a housekeeper there who wasn't so nice. And I thought, oh, shoot, she's going to tell on me. So I snuck in there and I put a lid on it real quick before she walked into the kitchen and it was saved. And I think another time I had a bottle of champagne in the freezer and it exploded. <laughs> Because it wasn't chilled in time. So sometimes when you're trying to balance all these moving pieces and make the, the meal perfect, you have a little bit of, get a little egg on your face. But it was nothing that was the end of the world. And luckily, I never got fired. But, you know, you're kind of, you walk on eggshells a little bit when stuff like that happens. Yeah, I have to imagine that would be a very high stress environment. I mean, just simply having to appeal to that many people, all with different, you know, allergy, you know, considerations and taste preferences. I mean... That's got to be, uh, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> that would drive me crazy. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, st I still sort of feel the stress. I remember when I went to acupuncture for the first time, um, I had all these memories flash back about what it was like. I, I worked at Blue Hill, which is one of the big farm-to-table restaurants in Manhattan. And I had this memory flashing back of just burning the whole top of my arm because somebody tripped and oil spilt over onto me and just so many things like that. But that's that's what it is to be a chef. It's not glamorous. I mean, it is glamorous and that the restaurant scene in New York is so glamorous and the people you see, but your job is not glamorous. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard for the week of heart. So kind of reeling it in time, the, the chef and the keto and low carb space together. How, I mean, what's your go-to ketogenic friendly meals and how do you like to prepare them? Yeah, I, my ketogenic friendly meals are really based on a lot of vegetables because the vegetables are the mega healers. I mean, there are things in meat that can help you in terms of brain health, especially with things like B12 and, and um, you know, glutamine is another one uh, and iron, heme iron versus non-heme iron, which gets absorbed really you know, the meat iron gets absorbed 100% versus the plant-based iron. So, you know, I try to do things like I'll take a head of cauliflower and chop it up and I'll fry it up in some grass-fed butter and I'll do some buffalo wing sauce. That's one of my favorites. And, you know, if I have some organic chicken, I'll shred that if it's already cooked and put it on top. But it's all about just making it really simple. Um, and, you know, I develop a lot of recipes for ketogenic companies, so I definitely have my favorites. I have a breakfast cookie that I love that I do with eggs, and I use um, cacao nibs, which are kind of like a secret weapon when you're craving chocolate chips, but you don't want to have the sugar from chocolate, or you don't want it to be ultra bitter when you're using unsweetened, the unsweetened cocoa bar. So if you just do cacao nibs, which are the cracked bean, because they have so much fat in them too, they don't taste as bitter. So I do uh, almond flour, eggs, uh, grass-fed butter. I put the cacao nibs in there. I do a little stevia to give it a hint of sweetness. And then I do something like cinnamon because cinnamon is a healing spice that can help to balance your blood sugar. Really good for gut health too. So it's about making these simple recipes with really good quality ingredients. And I don't 
use a lot, but I try to make at least two or three batches because I have a hungry man who lives here. And then I come home from kickboxing and I want a cookie and guess what? They're all gone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I tell people definitely batch cooking. And that cauliflower, by the way, tastes awesome cold. And sometimes when I'm super busy because I work more than 70 hours a week, I just grab it out of the fridge and eat it right out of the glass container with a fork. Yeah, I think meal prepping, I mean, I do a lot of meal prepping whenever I'm in a competition prep and I'm kind of wanting to simplify things. And it just, it makes life easy. It takes the guesswork out of it. You can make sure you've got quality nutrition. And I mean, with keto, you don't have to, you don't have to be bound by the clock as far as when you're eating. So as long as you've got something pre-prepared, there's no sense, there's no excuse to not, you know, be on top of your nutrition. Yeah, and it's also about keeping your blood sugar levels uh, balance. That's so, so important because that puts stress on your organs. So what's important is not to let yourself go to your starving, even when you're doing keto. And I know when you're competing professionally, and I always talk up to my sensei about this, you know, you guys are following totally different regimes. You're doing things like salt baths and ice baths and all this stuff to clock in at certain weights. But for like people that don't compete as athletes, it's just really important to make sure that you always have something in your car, I tell people. So whether it is you, you know, do a batch of like a nice keto cookie, you can make a keto pancake that has almond flour in it and lemon and poppy seeds and throw this stuff in the freezer. You know, you can just, what I do so that I don't have to worry about the plastic bags is I actually wrap things in wax paper and I throw it in the freezer and then I grab and go when I need them. So it's just really important to make sure that you keep yourself nourished throughout the day. And this is also how you can do less calories and keep your weight down and not feel hungry. Totally agree. Do you ever use a sous vide by chance to cook with? You know, I have. I'm actually certified in sous vide cooking, um, but it's more for foodies. Uh, I think it's fine. I just find it to be extra work to get the, so for people who don't know sous vide, it's basically when you're cooking in a water bath and you put things into a bag and you cook it perfectly to temperature. So it's kind of like almost using a crock pot, but you're using water um, to cook things. But I find just having to drag out the container, fill it with water, put the mechanism in it, it's a lot of extra work. And because I'm restaurant trained, I'd rather just have that beautiful, I mean, you can sear things after you take it out of the sous vide, but it's faster for me to do it straight in the skillet. So I don't use a lot of sous vide, but I think sous vide would make sense for people who are nervous to use a skillet or people who want to do meat that's perfectly tender and they're going to do lots of batch cooking. And that's where it's really helpful. And I think, you know, you don't have to have perfect culinary skills to get cooking. There are so many awesome tools. You've got the one pot, you've got the sous vide, you've got the slow cooker. There's so many ways that you can make these really delicious meals and you're doing a high quality protein with lots of vegetables. And, you know, if you're dying for grains, you're doing a half a cup of rice or a little bit of quinoa. It's really simple. Yeah, definitely keeping it simple taking the guesswork out of it, you know, the fewer, fewer decisions you have to make. I mean, decision fatigue is a real thing. So the more easy you can make it, the less excuses you have and the more likely you'll be able to sustain it long term. Yeah, for sure. And I think too, it's, I think people let, you know, the intimidation of cooking get in the way. And it's not about that. It's about doing really, I mean, a lot of the recipes I create, I do on a sheet pan, I do in one bowl. I actually bake those cookies in the toaster oven 
you know, this stuff can be no-brainers. Does it take more time? Sure, but, you know, you might be going out there getting a protein bar that's full of preservatives and sugar and all kinds of crazy stuff. And by the time you drive out to get it, you spend the money, you know, you could have made those cookies in 20 minutes. So, you know, it's it's about making smarter decisions and also saying that maybe my Sunday afternoon I'm going to put on a Netflix and I'm going to make a bunch of stuff that I can store in my freezer so that, I'm going to eat healthier and, and do, you know, dabble a little bit with keto. I call it keto-esque style diet, and it's just an easier way to go. What the, I'm curious, with, with all that you've learned thus far and kind of improved with your genetics and your gut microbiome testing, what, what is the, the next big thing on your list? Like, what are you excited about going forward? Yeah, I think uh, what I'm excited about most is I have, well, two things. I have a new book coming out, so I'm thrilled about that, and it's called Superfood Alchemy. And it's really the culmination of a lot of my knowledge in functional medicine. But I also, it's not just a cookbook, I incorporate tips for emotional healing and mindset tools. So I have essential oils, I have a little crystals in there because, you know, that's one of my favorite things. And also how to meditate because meditation is so huge and it's also really important um, to calm the nervous system and it has real biological repercussions. And the other thing I'm excited about is, you know, I'm really going through this process with um, this integrated OBGYN and how to balance my hormones. So I'm kind of curious to see what happens after we do some further tweaks, if uh, anything changes physically. I am feeling great now. I definitely feel a very, I feel more like 35 versus 46, but I'd just be curious to see because, uh, you know, maybe it'll it'll up my game a little bit in kickboxing. Yeah, I mean, uh, martial arts, yoga, and quality wholesome foods, I and mean, that's like the fountain of youth right there. I think so, for sure. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Jennifer, where can people go to find out more about you? Get a book. Yeah, they can check out my book at superfoodalchemy.com. And I have a free 10-part video series there called 10 Ways in 10 Days to Holistic Living. So even if you don't buy the book, you can grab the video series and it talks about meditation and plant-based eating. And then also um, my health coaching practice is bodyandsoulalchemy.com. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I will certainly link out to those so easy for people to find you. And I certainly appreciate your time. I'm excited to to read the book myself and see what all it entails. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Jennifer. Take care.